if you happen to have your Bible open uh, today, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 12. And uh, we'll get there in just a few moments. But I thought I would speak to us just for a little bit on the idea of good advice for bad times. Good advice for bad times. And let me start here. Uh, When a lot of people think about Jesus, and I'm convinced that a lot of people think about Jesus, uh, and they don't admit that they think about Jesus, but when a lot of people, or at least some people think about Jesus, they think about a man who walked around in a robe so wide he could have been featured in a Clorox commercial, uh, with hair so perfect he could have been featured in a shampoo commercial, and they think about him as some timid, soft-spoken, sappy, sentimental guy who really had too much time on his hand because he was often found holding lambs and hanging out with children. Uh, When some people think about Jesus, unfortunately, that's the version of Jesus that they think about. Uh, And here's the honesty that I wanna bring to the table and hopefully that you can bring to the table this morning. When we think of Jesus, for whatever reason, we don't like to think of a version of Jesus. We don't wanna think about a Jesus who is a social and religious agitator. Uh, We don't want to think about a man who raged against the social, religious, political machine. Uh, We don't want to think about a guy who overturned tables. We don't want to think about a Jesus who was skillfully subversive with his agenda. Uh, When we think about Jesus, we don't want to think about a Jesus who was politically uh, interested in what was going on in his day. We don't want to think about someone who was so controversial that he was polarizing. Um, When we think about Jesus, it's just almost near impossible for us to naturally want to imagine a Jesus that fits into our box. Uh, It's hard for us to imagine a Jesus who doesn't agree with us on most, if not every major issue of life. Um, We just don't want to follow that type of Jesus. We don't want to follow a Jesus that disturbs us or perplexes us or surprises us or at times confuses us. We want a version of Jesus that always makes sense. Uh, We want a version of Jesus that appeals to our logic, and we want a version of Jesus who more times than not, who would do what I would do in any given situation. Uh, We want a version of Jesus that is safe, uh, safe for my lifestyle, safe for my relationships, safe when it comes to my resources, and safe to all the areas of my life that I wanna protect from God or I want to declare off limits from God. And so we would love uh, to follow a Jesus who is safe. Uh, we want a version of Jesus who, of course, is a member of the political party that we are a member of. And uh, we wanna follow a Jesus who sees the world exactly the way that we see the world. But here, here's the honest thing. When you open up the scriptures and you open up to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of the life and the ministry, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, that's not the Jesus that we find. Uh, Matter of fact, if I'm honest, I don't always agree with Jesus. Uh, I think if you're really honest, you're going to find out that if you actually read the gospels, there's going to be times that you don't always agree with Jesus. I don't always like what Jesus said. I don't always like what Jesus meant when he said what he said. Um, Let's just even get more honest. Sometimes when Jesus says what he says and he meant uh, what he meant by what he said, it it really, it cuts against my personality at times. Sometimes it cuts against my intellect. At other times it cuts against my experience. 
Uh, I don't like the fact that Jesus talked so much about hell. I don't like the fact that he talked about hell more than he did heaven. I would like to adjust that a little bit. I would like to make that a little bit more balanced, but that's not the way it is. Uh, I don't always like it when Jesus talks about money. I don't like it when Jesus talks about worry and he says what he says. I, I don't really like what Jesus said about taxes and I don't like what Jesus said about lust. Uh, it cuts against my experiences. It cuts against my personality. It cuts against my logic. Sometimes it cuts against my humanity. Um, Eddie Becker in his article, Eight Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. Uh, this is what he said. He says, if we can all be truthful, and we should, we find some things Jesus said difficult. Listen again. If we can all be truthful, we find some things Jesus said difficult. We can debate over the cultural applications of many of the statements that he made, and we do. We can add to and take away and twist and rearrange the phrases so they fit our own selfish purposes, and unfortunately, at times we do. He says, I'm as guilty as any other at doing these things. And I think if you're honest, and I think if I'm honest, I would have to co-sign. I would have to say, yeah, that's me too. I'm guilty of doing these very things. And then listen to this last statement that he makes in this article called Eight Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. He said, yet all I can do is wonder, all I can do is wonder if the things I wish Jesus hadn't said are really the things he wanted me to hear and do the most. Think about that. Yet all I can do is wonder if the things I wish Jesus hadn't said are really the things that he wanted me to hear and do the most. Now. When it comes to Jesus, the most disturbing thing I believe that Jesus said is also the most important thing that Jesus said. Uh, one day Jesus was asked, uh, Jesus, what is most important to God? Uh, what is the thing that God is most concerned about? What's the thing in your life or my life that God is most interested in? And Jesus, he answered the question quickly. Jesus said, okay, the most important thing to God is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so that was pretty clear, but uh, they were just as defensive in the first century as what we are in the 21st century. So the natural follow-up question to, you know, Jesus's answer to what is most important to God when he says to love your neighbors yourself, the follow-up question is, well, then who is my neighbor? Because Jesus, obviously you don't know all my neighbors. Jesus, obviously you can't expect me to love every neighbor as I love myself, because do you know how some of my neighbors behave? Do you know what some of my neighbors believe? Do you know what some of my neighbors look like? Do you know how different I am from some of my neighbors? So Jesus, you know, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells a story. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan. And at the end of the story, Jesus's point was very clear. If you wanna know who your neighbor is, uh, because you wanted to know what is most important to God, and I told you that it was to love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you really wanna know who your neighbor is, let me tell you who your neighbor is. Your story is, your neighbor is every single person you come into contact with. Everyone is your neighbor, uh, regardless of whether you agree with them, look like them, behave like them, vote like them, or believe like them. Uh, that was what Jesus taught, that's what Jesus said, and it was clear and it was disturbing. The most important thing to God according to Jesus, is people. That's you, that's me, and that's everybody else in the world. The most important thing to God is people. And I think that the question that Jesus wants us to wrestle with as a result of what he taught about the most important thing concerning how God felt about your life and my life, the thing that's most important to God, I think that he wants us to wrestle with this question. Is the thing that's most important to God most important to me. 
Is the thing that's most important to God the most important thing to me? Now, it was this idea that really fueled much of Jesus' teaching, that people are the most important thing to God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, Jesus, he said, do for others as you would have them do for you. And when you do so, you are keeping the law of God because the law of God is love your neighbor and do for them the way that you would want them to do for you. And then in John chapter 13, Jesus, uh, shortly before he's gonna be arrested and crucified, he takes his disciples into the upper room and he washes their feet. Now he washes their feet, not because their feet were you know, necessarily just dirty and needed a good washing, though I'm sure perhaps that was the case as well, but Jesus washed their feet in order to drive this point home. And so Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, including Peter, who would deny him, including Judas, who would betray him. And then after he washed their feet, Jesus looked at them and said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another the way that I have loved you. Gentlemen, this is an illustration. This is a demonstration of how I want you to love other people. I want you to wash everyone's feet or be willing to wash everyone's feet. And so the implication I think is very personal and it's very weighty. I think what Jesus wants us to wrestle with is whose feet am I not willing to wash? Whose feet can I not even dare dream of washing because of what they stand for or what they believe or how they act? Jesus says, you need to pay attention to that. You need to always be wrestling with this idea or this question, whose feet do I really not wanna wash? Whose feet am I not willing to wash? Because that's very telling, Jesus would say, as it relates to what is most important to God. So whose feet am I not willing to wash? Or whose feet do I not really wanna wash? And whose feet are you not interested in washing? Whose feet just almost makes you sick to think about washing? That's why Jesus said what he said. That's the reason he did what he did. And Jesus said, but when you, when you love like this, that's when people are gonna know that you are a follower of me. When you love one another the way that I have loved you. So Jesus taught his disciples this. The disciples became the apostles and the apostles, they got this message. Matter of fact, they wrote this message down and we find it throughout the New Testament. Uh, Peter got this message. He didn't always live up to it, but he got the message and he delivered this ideal that Jesus had passed on to him and to the others. In 1 Peter 4 verse eight, he said, above all, above all, love each other deeply. It's the most important thing, it's above all. Jesus' half-brother who was late to the party as it relates to following Jesus, he said in James 2 verse eight, he says, if you keep the royal law of the kingdom, the royal law found in scripture, it's love your neighbor as yourself. He said, you are doing right when you do that. It was James who also said, for those who, knew, who know to do right, but refuse to do it or neglect to do it, for that person, it is sin. He says, the right thing to do is to fulfill the royal law of the kingdom, and that's to love your neighbors yourself. Listen to what John, John got the message as well. First John chapter four, verse seven, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but listen to this, this is pretty straightforward, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then there's Paul, who we talked about last week. Paul who was an apostle, he said, called out of due season. Uh, Paul, he wrote in Galatians 5 verse 6, he says that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
In Colossians 3, verse 14, he says, and above all these other virtues, and he's talked about compassion and patience and all of that type of stuff. He says, but above all of these virtues, put on love because it's the most important thing. And of course, maybe at your wedding or a wedding you attended, some of the writings of Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, was read at the wedding. Uh, it's some people's favorite chapter or most known chapter. He talks about love and he says, hey, when it comes to love, it doesn't matter what you believe. Uh, it doesn't matter how you behave uh, if you don't show love. Uh, you can believe all the right things and you can behave in the right way, but if you don't have love, your life amounts to nothing. So Paul, he obviously got the message. And so the message of Jesus, the message in the New Testament, it is clear. The most important thing to God is people. It's to love our neighbor as ourselves. But here's the question, and this is really where I want us to seek our teeth in today. What does that mean? Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. The most important thing to God is love. But what does that mean? Because let's be honest, come on. Let's just get honest with this. Love at times can be vague. Uh, it can be manipulated. It can be unclear. It can, it can descend into shadow, you know, shallow sentimentality. It can be a, a directionless, purposeless emotion. Uh, we all know, some people when they think about love, they think of sappy, they think of emotion, they think of, you know, they've got this picture of love. But what does it mean to love someone the way that Jesus said we are to love them? What does it mean? What does it look like? Sometimes we know, sometimes it's not as clear. Does love mean anything goes? That you can live your life and I can live my life any way that I want to? Does it mean that you can live your life any way that you want to and I have to be okay with it? Does love mean that you have to swallow your convictions or I have to swallow my convictions? But uh, does love mean that I can't have convictions but you can and I've gotta be okay with them? Uh, does love mean that I have to agree with you always? Does love mean that we can't express our opinion or speak our opinion or write our opinion? Uh, does love mean that truth has to take a back seat? What does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself? Because it's very clear Jesus said love our neighbor. It's also very clear that he never said it would be easy or convenient. Jesus was very clear when he said love your neighbor as yourself, but he never once insinuated or hinted that it would be easy or convenient. Matter of fact, loving people the way the New Testament calls us to love people, it may be the most complicated and demanding and difficult thing that we attempt to do. Uh, love may be a single term, it, it may be a, a single idea or concept, but it involves many different principles, many different principles, and there's lots of layer to this onion called love. And keeping all the principles of love in proper balance, well, that's the challenging tension that you face. That's the challenging tension that I face. So what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourselves? What does it mean to love others the way that Jesus has loved us? Well, this is where Paul is very helpful. In the book of Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul, he, he writes some incredible content. Matter of fact, the whole letter to the church at Rome, what we call the book of Romans, is one incredible document. Uh, matter of fact, in the first 11 chapters, it's very theological. And when chapter 12 opens, the theological really gives way to the practical. Uh, Romans chapter 12 verses one and two begins with some verses that we've all heard and, and I'll read these and you'll follow along because it helps us set context for what he's about to say next. He says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true, now listen to this, underline this. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed to it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, he says, this is, this is what worship looks like in your life and my life. Worship is just not singing like some people always refers to singing as worship. Well, singing may involve worship, but it may not. So worship is more than singing and worship is more than a time and a place where you gather together, though that's part of it, but there's more to it than that. Worship is really the life that we live. It's the life that you live. It's the life that I live. Worship really comes down to how we feel about people. It's how we treat people. It's how we respond to people. It's how we think about people in light of who God is and what Jesus has done for every single one of us. And so Paul begins chapter 12 with saying, okay, following Jesus is incredibly practical. Uh, the things of the spirit, the things of worship, those things are also incredibly practical. And so when we jump down to verse nine of chapter 12, this is where he really begins to unpack what love looks like as new covenant followers of Jesus. Listen to what he says, follow along, because this is good stuff. This is good advice for bad times. In verse nine, he says, love must be sincere. Now, this is part of a verse, and it's the beginning of verse nine, obviously, but we could think of this as the heading for all the things that Paul is going to say next. Uh, Paul's gonna begin by saying, whatever you do, don't fake the most important thing. Whatever you do, don't pretend to live out the most important thing. If God believes the most important thing is people, and Jesus said to love people as he has loved you, by all means, don't fake that. Uh, don't pretend to do that. Uh, don't make it all smoke and mirrors. Don't show hypocritical love. Don't play a part. Don't pretend. Uh, don't speak empty words or, or do superficial actions. Paul says, you got to make it real. You gotta make this real. If you're gonna love the way that Jesus has called us to love and commanded us to love, you gotta make it real. You don't wanna be like the person the psalmist talked about where their words were as smooth as butter, but war was in their heart. Paul says, listen, I'm under no illusion. This is not easy, this is not convenient. You're gonna have to work to make this real. Otherwise, this thing of love, it can be made into something manipulative and it can become a thing of pretense or quid pro quo. It can be a thing where you just love those that you agree with or look like. He says, love can go off the rails really quickly and become something dangerous. It can be misused, it can be abused, it can be misrepresented. He says, so you gotta do the hard work. I've gotta do the hard work to be authentic and genuine in the way that I love. That means I've gotta move past the pettiness of life. If I'm gonna be a petty person, I'm, I'm gonna have a hard time loving like Jesus. If I'm gonna wear my emotions on my shirt sleeves, I'm gonna have a hard time loving like Jesus. If I'm gonna be super sensitive and offended at everything people do or, or, or don't do, I'm gonna have a hard time loving like Jesus. I've gotta move past the pettiness of life and sometimes that can be hard work. I've gotta move past my personality quirks and I've got them and you've got them and sometimes we allow our personalities to keep us from loving people the way that Jesus wants us to love people. Extroverts and introverts, they are both called to love the way that Jesus has loved us and neither or has an excuse. So it doesn't matter what your personality is, you're called and I'm called to move past it. We're to move past our insecurities. We're to move past our past experiences and not to allow any of those things 
to inhibit the way that we love our neighbors. So he says, you gotta do the hard work. It begins with God's command, but the next thing after I realize it's God's command, it becomes my choice to either love or not love. And I am called to make that choice and you're called to make that choice over and over and over and over and over again until it embeds itself into our character, into our way of life. Until we are conformed into the image of God, into the image of Christ, who is the essence and the embodiment of love itself. So Paul begins with calling us to genuine, authentic love. And then he moves on and he begins in rapid fire manner to give us sharp, strong, succinct injunctions, uh, directions, commands, uh, imperatives, uh, so that we understand what love looks like. And so he, he moves on, he says, so this is what love looks like. He says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. He said, if you're gonna love the way that we're called to love, you gotta hate what is evil, you gotta cling to what is good. And we don't like the word hate. For us in the 21st century, depending on how we've been raised and what we've experienced, hate is, this is not a good thing. This, this is a dangerous thing. This is why some of us walked away from faith because we thought, man, there's just so much hate in the church. But, but Paul's gonna teach us how to love. And he begins with, he says, you gotta hate what is evil and you gotta cling to what is good. Now, the first thing that I would point out is love does not erase those classifications. There is such a reality that is evil and there is a reality that is called good and those two things exist and love acknowledges it. Love hates evil, it hates sin. It refuses to participate in it, approve of it, celebrate it, be entertained by it. But here's the thing, why? And this is, this is where some of the churches we grew up in, this is where they got it wrong. Why do we hate evil? Why are we supposed to hate sin? Because the most important thing to God is people. And what does sin and evil do to people? It divides people, it destroys people. It destroys marriages and families and relationships between parents and children and siblings. It divides friendships, it destroys friendships. It divides and destroys communities and nations. It will destroy the world if left unchecked. And we are to hate evil, hate sin. Why? Because of what it does to the people that God loves. Who does God love? God loves everyone. And we hate sin because behind every shred of pain in the world, there's sin. Behind all the disappointment in the world, there's sin because behind every broken relationship in the world, there's sin because behind every act of oppression, there is sin. Behind all the divisive language that exists in our world, there is sin. Behind the animus and the hatred, there's sin. Behind the abuse of children, there's sin. Behind the abuse of men and women, there's sin. Behind all the isms of the world, lies sin. And Paul says, if you're gonna love, you gotta hate the things that divide and destroy people because the most important thing to God is people. Now, I gotta say this, again, we hate sin, but we dare not use hating sin as a license to unlove and mistreat people. And we just don't hate certain evils or certain sins. We hate it all because sin ultimately always kills steals and destroys. We refuse to allow the hatred of evil and the hatred of sin to in some way become a spiritual reasoning or a spiritual excuse to mistreat or misrepresent or speak to people in a way that Jesus wouldn't himself. 
And so that's where Paul begins. And then he says, we gotta cling to what is good. We cling to what is good, things like truth and grace and compassion and forgiveness and patience and self-control, humility, generosity, and you could keep on adding to the list. Even in the face of evil, we refuse to let go of those things because to hold on to those things, they're gonna help us love the people behind those issues. If we let go of good, we're not gonna love like Jesus loves. And so he goes on in verse 10. He says, so be devoted to one another in love. This is what it looks like, he says. Honor one another above yourselves. He says, you refuse to let go of the good things in face of evil things. You hate what is evil, you abhor it, you cling to what is good, and you're devoted to one another in love. You honor one another. You honor one another. Uh, it's really, it speaks of family love. You, you love each other like family. You love other people like family. And let's just be honest for just a moment. Every family has its moments. Every family that I know uh, has its fair share of crazy. Uh, and when your family goes a bit crazy or has a moment, uh, you may wanna run out the house and scream. Uh, you may wanna go and lock yourself behind a closed door or even take a long drive, or you may need a weekend away, but you don't go find a new family. That, that's not what people who love family do, though that's what some people in our culture like to think they can do. Uh, people, they get fed up with her or him and they just go find a new him or her or a new family or people in the church, they do this. The church says something, the church doesn't say something, so they pop out their bottom lip and they go find another faith family that will be there family. He says, no, that's not family love. Family love is in the thick and the thin. Family love is when it's crazy, when it's ugly, when it's bad, and even when it's good. He says, you love one another through the good and the bad. You try to outpace each other. You try to out-honor each other. You, you lift each other up as being more important than yourself. He says, that's what it means to love the way that Jesus wants us to love. You look at everybody around you, and you try to figure out a way to honor them. You, you try to figure out a way to make them look good. You try to find a way to encourage them. You think about what things mean for them before you think about what things mean for you. He says, that's what love looks like. It's not easy. It's not convenient. Listen to verse number 11, he goes on and he says, so never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. In other words, you can't be apathetic and love the way that Jesus wants you to love. Uh, love isn't getting to the place where you're numb or you're over it or you just don't care anymore. It's not apathy. Uh, it's not supposed to be because apathy is a dangerous thing because apathy always invites ignorance. And so once we're apathetic, we become ignorant. And once we're ignorant, we become disengaged. And when we're disengaged, we're not effective. And when we're not effective, we're not making a difference. Uh, love is about being passionate, it's about being hot-hearted, it's about being fervent in how we feel about people. Uh, and we don't give way to the apathy that so easily, oftentimes, we find people all around us giving into. Um, Proverbs 18.9 says that indifference actually opens the door for destruction. When you don't care enough to say something, when you don't care enough to do something, guess what? Evil begins to grow. Evil begins to advance. And Jesus said that's what was gonna happen in the last days, that the hearts of many people would be waxing cold, colder and colder, apathetic, indifferent. Listen, we are to be passionate, Paul says. Uh, we're to be passionate about people. And because we're passionate about people, you know what? We're passionate about issues uh, because issues affect people. 
Uh, we should be passionate about laws because laws affect people. We should be passionate about policy because policy affects people. We should be passionate about economics because economics affect people. We, we, don't, we don't sit back as Christians and just put our feet up and just not care about the world around us. That's not what we're called to do. You can't love your neighbor and be disengaged and say, you know what? I just don't care. I'm going to take care of my own. I'm going to take care of my little circle and everybody else can just figure it out on their own. He says, no, that's not what it means. Verse 12, he goes on. He says, so be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Uh, this is Paul's way of saying this is not going to be easy, folks. If you're gonna love, don't lose your joy. Uh, if you're gonna love, you gotta endure through the hard times. And if you're gonna love uh, the way that Jesus calls you to love, you're gonna have to be faithful in prayer because when you lose your joy, when you lose your ability to endure difficulty, and when you go prayerless, you sink into some self-obsessive, self-destructive cycle of thought and behavior. And he says, you just can't afford to do that. So he keeps on unpacking this in verse 13. This is good advice for us. This is like rapid fire. He says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. He says, so share and be hospitable. Share and be hospitable. In verse 14, he goes a little bit further. and He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Uh, this is an echo of what Jesus taught. Remember, Jesus said, bless your enemy, pray for your enemy, do good for your enemy. Uh, this was not only Jesus's teaching, but this was Jesus's example. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. Uh, when he suffered, he did not threaten retaliation. Uh, he actually asked God to forgive his torturers from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so this is Paul putting together Jesus's teaching and his example. And he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Listen, love is not just refusing to curse your enemy. It's more than that. It is actively asking God to bless your enemy rather than bringing them to ruin. Whew. I told you there's some things that the scriptures teach I just don't like. Now I could get behind the just not cursing part as long as I'm secretly rooting for their demise and destruction. No, he says, no, it's more than that. To love the way that Jesus loves, it's just not to refuse to curse your enemy. It is actually to seek ways for them to be blessed, asking God even himself to bless them. He says, you're gonna be persecuted. And, and persecution comes in many different variations and expressions. Sometimes it can be social ostracizing. Sometimes it can be economic targeting. Sometimes it can be violent. Uh, sometimes it can be in legal actions or mandates or discrimination. Persecution can come in various expressions. And Paul says, even when persecution comes to you in, in whatever it looks like and feels like, whatever it may be depending on your culture and the time of history in which you live, bless those who persecute you. Find ways to bless your enemy. Loving your persecutor is one of the startling kingdom commands that Jesus gave his followers. In verse 15, Paul says, so Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And these rapid fire statements of Paul, they're really not logically connected. It's like he's just going off, you know, conscious thinking. He's like, okay, you wanna know what it means to love people and you wanna know what love really is? And he just starts writing these things down. And, and in verse, verse, verse 15, he's saying, be so connected to people that you feel what they feel. 
For those who are hurting, you are so connected to people and you love people, you, you hurt with them. If there's a group of people in our culture, a group of people in our world that's hurting you, you hurt with them. If there's a group of people who are celebrating, you celebrate with them, that's how much you love them. You're able to feel what other people feel because it's real and it runs deep. In verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. That's a message for today. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. That's Paul's way of saying, be, be willing to spend your time and share your life with people who are not in your circle, not in your tribe, not in your socioeconomic level. He says, be willing to be with all people despite what their title and what their labels are. He says, live in harmony with one another. Uh, he says, love isn't thinking the same thing as everybody else. That's not harmony, that's not unity. Uh, but love is thinking the same thing about everybody. You see them as more important than yourself. Um, you're, you're not falling into the trap where you're thinking you're always right and everybody else is always wrong or your tribe's always right and their tribe's always wrong. No, you're, you're, you're doing your best to, to live in harmony because it, that's good. Unity and harmony, it's good. It's good in the family, it's good in the church, it's good in the community, it's good in the nation, it's good for the world. And when good is advanced, evil is pushed back. In verse 17, he says, so do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And again, it's the same idea. Revenge is not the way of Christ. We don't repay evil with evil. We repay evil with good. It's not easy, it's not convenient. And probably truth be told right now, with everything that's going on in our world, we're not even sure we like it when we think about what it might mean for us. Listen to verse 18, he goes, he says, so if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Pursue behavior that makes peace possible. It's good advice. Marriage, family, friends, churches, communities, Pursue behavior that makes peace possible. Diffuse conflict, don't ignite it. Have, you know, have conversations, not argument. Don't use language that makes people you know, just absolutely lose their mind. Don't do that. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you. If it's not possible, let that be on them, not you. That's what Paul's saying. If, if peace is not possible, don't let it be your fault. Don't be a contributor to the disunity. Don't be a contributor to the unrest. And then he keeps on going again. He says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. He says, when it comes to your enemy, don't side against them. Side with grace on behalf of your enemy. Uh, don't engage in backbiting or slander or insult and don't baptize it in spirituality or religiosity. Don't, don't backbite, insult, uh, don't yell at, don't hate, uh, don't mistreat people all in the name of truth-telling or in the name of standing up for what is right. Don't do that. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, if he's in need, you meet the need. He said, that's what it means to love. And in doing so, you may reap coals of fire on his head. You may inspire them to take a step in the direction of Jesus. And so he says all of this and he brings us to the conclusion in verse 21. He sums it all up. He comes back full circle and he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not overcome 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And he brings us back to where he started. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Paul, how do we overcome evil? He says, with good. He reminds us that love is the only hope of the world. It's the only hope of pushing back evil and advancing good. Do not be overcome by evil. There's lots of evil in the world, lots of wrong, lots of brokenness, lots of pain, lots of anger, lots of hatred. Don't be overcome by it. Don't be overcome by it. You're not to be overcome by those things. You're, you're to overcome those things. And you overcome evil with good, he says. And here's what I think Paul's saying. When we play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world, when we hate, when we malign and harbor grudges and have bitterness and practice unforgiveness, when we slander, when we insult, when we sow division, when we act immaturely, when we neglect opportunities to do good, when we grow indifferent or apathetic to those around us, Paul says, evil advances, evil advances. But every time you do the right thing at home, every time you do the right thing at work, every time you do the right thing in the community or at church or online, every time you decide to show compassion or speak truth in love or help someone in need or give grace or forgive or encourage or advocate on behalf of someone or engage constructively in the process of what's going on in our nation and community he says you are doing good and in doing good you are overcoming evil and that's what it means to love because the only answer for evil is good and good begins with love and he says this is what it means you see, you have the power to overcome evil by doing good. And every good thing you will ever do will begin with a choice to love people. Let me say that one more time. You have the power to overcome evil by doing good. And every good thing you will do, every good thing you will do will begin with a choice to love someone else. That's where it begins. So let's do the hard work. Let's make it real. Dorothy Day, she said, we really only love God as much as we love the person we love the least. Boy, I hope that's not true, but maybe it is. What if I really only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least? The person that I love the least, that's, that's as much as I love God. I think Paul's bringing bringing us to this place to think about these things. I think he would remind us that love begins with the theological, but it ends with the practical. God is love. God has demonstrated his love for us. So while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we receive that love and receive that grace, we love others in the way that we've been loved. I think Paul would remind us of that. I think he would say, here's what this application looks like. Love is a relentless combination of truth and grace and word and action. Love is a relentless combination of truth and grace and words and action. It's just not truth and it's just not grace. It's truth and grace. It's just not words and it's just not actions. It's words and actions. It's truth and grace. Uh, love isn't instinctive or logical. Love is a choice. It, don't wait on an emotion to overcome you. You have to choose this and not just one time, but over and over again. Love takes into consideration who? where, 
when and what. There's no playbook when it comes to love. One play doesn't always work. You have to pay attention. You have to be discerning. You have to know who you're dealing with, where you are, what's going on. You have to know the story. And you gotta be willing to love in that moment the way that love requires you to love in that moment. And then when in doubt of what you should do or say, side with grace, side with grace, side with grace. Heavenly Father, loving our neighbor is clear, but it's certainly not easy. And I'm not sure it will ever be convenient. Jesus said that when we love people the way that he has loved us, the whole world will stop and say, right there is a follower of Jesus. God, our nation, our world right now needs to be able to look at the church, to look at Jesus followers of all ages and needs to be able to look at us and say, that right there, that's a follower of Jesus with a love that's so attractive, a love that causes pause, a love that invites people and attracts people to faith in a savior. So God, I pray, help us to work hard to get this right, to make this type of love genuine. It's hard work. Help us to get it right. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before we go today, uh, maybe you're like me. Maybe this is a day you need to rededicate your life to that type of love, to the hard work, to love all of our neighbors just like that, to not be one-sided or heavy-handed one way or the other, but to do the heavy lifting and figure out what it means to love in the world that we live in right now. And maybe that's a commitment that you need to make today. Maybe you are watching and you need to follow Jesus and you can do that right there where you are. He said, whosoever calls upon his name shall be saved. You can do that. If you wanna give to the church, you can still do that to help further our mission of loving God and loving people. You can give, your generosity changes lives and it helps people hear the message of the scriptures. So thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you wrestle with this. I hope you go back and read this text and figure out what the Holy Spirit may be saying to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you back next week for the Creek Church Online.